You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 74. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. As many of you know, in addition to being a mom, which is my favorite job in the world, and also hosting this podcast, I'm an attorney, and I own my own law firm, The Carney Firm. I specialize in being general outside counsel for small businesses and also intellectual property matters such as registering a trademark and counseling and other intellectual property matters. I love helping small businesses, and I'm also a business consultant for them as well. So if you're a mama and you own your own business, I would be so honored if you would consider reaching out to me for a free consultation. You could reach me at emily at thecarneyfirm.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at attorney Emily. I'm also a mom-friendly lawyer. Some of my clients are mothers. I'm a mother. And so if you have a loud child in the background on a phone call with me, it does not matter to me whatsoever. As long as you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. And for a disclaimer by law, I'm required to say that this is attorney advertising and also is not legal advice. Hi, Rosalia. Thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the Mother Good Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Well, I know that we've, you know, tried to reschedule this a lot and, you know, my family, we had COVID and then you had something too. So I'm finally, I'm glad we finally were able to make this happen. Yeah. Uh, We're both moms. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is such an important topic to me, consent, especially since I have a four-year-old daughter who's just now starting to do different activities, and then also, uh, you know, a one-and-a-half-year-old son. And, uh, like, my daughter just did princess camp this past week, and so I, you know, logged on to your Instagram and ordered a bunch of your consent books because I just want to be really clear about about that. Um, And so it's something that's extremely important to me. Uh, but before we dive into consent and what it is, I'd love for you just to introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what your background is. Sure. Yeah, thanks. And I'm so glad that you were able to get some resources to get started on those conversations with your with your daughter. Um, yes, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a consent educator and child sexual abuse prevention specialist, and I work Uh, with parents to help them go from anxious to confident in having those body safety uh, boundaries and consent conversations so that they can prevent abuse. And I work mostly with parents who are survivors. I'm a survivor myself, um, although I now consider myself a thriver and want to help other parents who are also survivors to learn how to navigate this topic with confidence because it can be triggering for a lot of parents who haven't you know gone through this experience themselves um, and so yeah I help them um, navigate it and to I think for all parents whether you're a survivor or not to recognize that this doesn't have to be a scary topic and we can actually dismantle the taboo of this conversation so that it becomes the norm to talk about it because it's so prevalent today more than ever, and people don't realize it. So part of my work is in creating awareness around the topic. Um, I'm also the founder of Consent Parenting, which is the platform that I use to teach parents. Um, I host the About Consent podcast, and I'm also the chair of the SAGE organization, which is leading the Brave Movement, which is a very exciting new global initiative to end child sexual abuse working with um, partners all over the world. So um, that's what I do. And it's, uh, I'm very excited to be here because this is my passion is to share this information with others. I'm so glad that you did start your, you know, your Instagram page and it is your passion to just get the word out because to be honest with you, just as you said, it's a scary topic. It's a very scary topic for me as well. And I think it's just one of those that a lot of parents just try to avoid because it is very scary and uncomfortable. And since following your Instagram page and getting some of the resources, it's just 
given me the confidence to actually talk about it too, because it does seem a little bit taboo and embarrassing to talk about, but it is just so important. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned the prevalence of, uh, you know, kids. I, I, I'm trying not to be like that triggering and I don't know all the words for it. So maybe you could help me out here, but um, the prevalence of child abuse, maybe you can touch on that again, not to scare parents out there because I know so many mom friends already are like worried about so many different things. So I don't mean to add one more thing to their worry plate, but maybe you could just touch on how prevalent it is. Uh, yeah. in society and in even in the United States, because I think a lot of people just think it's kind of something of the past. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So globally, the statistic is uh, at an average, uh, because it is different in different countries. Uh, but I'll give you a global statistic and then a, a, a US statistic. So globally, it's one in five girls and one in 10 boys that are abused. So that is a very high percentage. We're talking about 50% um, of the population, right? And um, as it relates to the United States, it's one in four girls and one in six boys. So not wow. that far from the global, um, the, the global average. And when, uh, when we talk about these numbers, we also have to remember that this is a crime that is gravely underreported. So the numbers are likely much higher than that. And mm-hmm. to add to that, and again, this isn't to make people scared. We want, I want people to receive this information and acknowledge that, wow, it is bigger than we realized. And there's so much that we can do about it. So we don't have to be scared of the problem. Let's focus on the solutions, right? So um, just, you know, just to to give you a little bit more insight as to, you know, different ages are also experiencing this in different ways. So there was a recent statistic I just learned um, at at a conference in Brussels that is specifically geared towards ending online uh, exploitation and violence against children. And they were looking at data that talks about from 2010 to now, right? So 12 years, the increase of uh, exploitation, the reports that have been received um, in that time span has gone up by 6,000%. Oh my gosh. And this number, you know, was definitely compounded because of the pandemic. So many kids, you know, went online. Really. But then also just so many other reasons why this has become a problem. And I won't go into all of that right now, but just to give you sort of a baseline of how how prevalent this issue has become. And um, a lot of people tend to think that it is an, you know, adult to child issue but it is increasingly becoming a peer-to-peer issue. In fact, mm-hmm. 40% of abuse that happens to children by someone that they know and trust, 40% of that is peers. And that number is wow. on the increase. So that's something that I think a lot of parents should be aware of and why it's so important to teach kids from a very young age and not wait too long. Right. I think I saw a statistic like that on your your Instagram page about the peer-to-peer abuse. And that's something, honestly, that I didn't really think about. I was always just thinking about more in terms of a parent or an adult, that sort of situation. And so when I was talking to my daughter recently and reading her the children books that that you recommended, that that's one thing that I made sure I emphasize. It's, you know, it's not just adults, it's kids too. You know, no one else can, you know, touch you and all, all these different things. Uh, and I was just so shocked uh, to, to that I didn't think about it. And also that that is such a high statistic. It's just yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, and going back to the underreported aspect of it, I think that that's so important to emphasize how this is underreported and just sexual crimes in nature or in general. Uh, you know, I personally have a few friends, unfortunately, who have been sexually assaulted. And, you know, I don't. I think the vast majority of them, um, I'm thinking actually only one probably reported it, but the rest never did. And it's just very embarrassing. They didn't want to be known as quote, that girl have that stigma and that's how they're known for in the community and all that. Mm -hmm. So I I mean, just personally, I can attest that that's so true, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. And I actually have a post on all the reasons why children don't report. There's so many and all of it stems back to the fact that 
parents just don't know how to have these conversations. And so they're not giving their children the um, the tools and the skills to be able to report, to know that it's safe to report and to be able to access help so that they don't get stuck in repeat situations or situations that escalate. Um, so when we do, t- you know, when we become proactive in this, we want to help kids obviously to prevent this from happening, but because of how prevalent it is, there is a chance regardless of how much you do, there is a chance that someone could offend on on a child. And we want kids to know the second part of abuse prevention is how to access help so that it doesn't happen again, right? We don't want Mm -hmm. children to be re-victimized. We want them to get the support that they need so that they can process what happened and be able to do boundary repair and move forward, right? So it's really key that parents think about, you know, Yes, prevention is important, but also giving kids the tools for what to do if something does happen. Because we tell kids a lot of the times, um, you know, no one should touch you. That's, right. you know, what's inappropriate and what's appropriate. Um, but a lot of times we don't give kids exit strategies along with that. So I'll give you a quick example. Um, in Tarana Burke's book, Tarana Burke, if you're not familiar with who she is, she's the founder of the Me Too movement. And she wrote a book uh, this past fall called Unbound. And she shares her own story of abuse as a child. Her first experience was, a chi- was as a child, later as an adult. But a lot of times people also don't realize that um, abuse can happen to uh, a, an adult and is typically because it's easy for that person to be re-victimized because of their, their history, right? And we know that uh, just, you know, an example of this is that 80% of trafficking survivors of human trafficking survivors um, that are, are, are sold for uh, sexual purposes, they 80% of them are child sexual abuse victims or survivors. Um, The, the, the level of re-victimization for that demographic is much, much higher, but not to digress. So um, the reason that I that I bring that up is because Tarana Burke shares her story of what happened, and very much like most moms will say, you know, don't let you know someone touch you there. You know, be very careful. Don't bring unnecessary attention to yourself. Like as you know, a child gets older, that may be the messaging that they get, and so they feel very responsible for preventing that abuse. And if it does happen, they feel like it's somehow their fault. If they tell, then they're going to disappoint the parent because they didn't obey or they didn't adhere, you know, to, to the, um, warnings. Right. And so unfortunately a child will feel afraid to tell a parent. So if we want to make sure that when we're giving kids these tools, we need to know that it's not their job to prevent abuse. That's our job to give them the skills to recognize what abuse is so that if it were to happen, they can report. But our other job as parents that can really reduce the risk of abuse is to talk to the adults in our children's lives, including the parents of the kids that they hang out with. Because we would then probably encourage those parents to start also educating their kids, which reduces the likelihood of peer-to-peer abuse. So there's lots of things that we can do. When I share about this information, I also want parents to know that you have so much more power and influence, and there are so many more resources and tools and skills that you can develop now versus 10, 20 years ago that our parents didn't have. So we have so much more of an advantage to prevent this now than ever. So even though this mm-hmm. this is an increasing problem, there are also increasing solutions. So that's really good news. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's so wonderful. My my mother actually she mentions that all the time. Whenever I find different resources for topics, she always says, "Oh, that wasn't available when you when you kids were younger." And so I, I really am thankful for all of those resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just something that I wanted to touch on that you had mentioned, as you said, that children are so scared to report it. And just going back to when I had mentioned the friend, the few friends that I have who are survivors, that they didn't even want to tell anyone uh, in their lives as adults and when they were assaulted as adults. So I can't even imagine children uh, having to bring up that topic because no one really likes talking about it. I mean, parents don't even really like talking to their kids about sex in general. I mean, every everyone I know, their parents either never talked about 
sex, like consensual sex in general, or just maybe talked about it once embarrassingly and then moved on. So that doesn't really surprise me at all that that's such a very difficult conversation to have. I wanted to rewind a little bit and just get back to the basics on what consent actually is, uh, because obviously you know what it is and I know what it is. But just recently, I didn't, until recently, I didn't realize how complex it is. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can give a simple definition and then we can get into some of the nuances of what invalidates consent, like coercion and you know special relationships between individuals and those sorts of things. Sure, sure. Yeah, getting a clear definition is key. So I want to start by saying that consent education and abuse prevention education are actually two different things. And consent education is actually the foundation of abuse prevention. So they intersect, they intertwine, and they interplay, but they are two different things. And so when we're what I my philosophy in particular of teaching abuse prevention education starts with the foundation of helping kids understand the concept of body autonomy, boundaries, and consent. So there's three parts to it. And so in order to understand consent, you have to understand the concept of body autonomy. And so for kids, you want to simply say, your body belongs to you. And that is body autonomy, right? So the fact that your body belongs to you means that you get to say what happens to and with your body. So that's how we want to explain it to kids. And then that brings in the concept of boundaries, right? When you get to say what happens, that means that you have the right to set what are called boundaries, right? And we want to give kids the idea of physical boundaries, right? Um, Is that comfort level of, you know, that space between you and another person? Where is that comfort level for you, right? And so helping them to figure out what their physical boundaries are is going to be important, helping them understand what their emotional boundaries are. So do you want to receive a hug and a kiss from grandma or would you prefer a different way to, you know, express, you know, that greeting? So we want to explain to them that they have a right to set those boundaries. So we want kids to figure out what are my boundaries, right? What are those things that I'm comfortable with and not comfortable with? And that's going to be an ongoing process. They will learn it as they go as well, but they'll come up with some basic ones, right? I think kids, when they get to a certain age, They become very self-aware and they want to start being able to exercise that independence. So they'll, you know, develop those boundaries. And then we want to teach them how to to implement those boundaries, how to vocalize. Hey, grandma, I don't feel like a hug today, but how about a high five? Or, you know, I'm just not feeling like snuggling today, Um, maybe later, right? So how do we help them learn how to vocalize those boundaries? And then consent is actually the permission. So if grandma wants to give you a hug, she has to ask permission, aka consent, right? So it's really just an interchange of of language, but it's essentially what we want kids to understand. No one should just do what they want to you. They should ask and you have a right to say yes or no. Now for young children and as parents, we are their stewards and guardians and our job is to keep them healthy and safe. So we want to let them know there are some situations where we have to override your body autonomy for health and safety reasons. For example, when we're crossing the street, you don't know how to cross the street by yourself just yet. So I have to hold your hand, but I'm going to give you some options. You have the option of having me carry you across the street. You have the option of holding my hand when we cross the street, or you can be in the stroller when we cross the street. You got some options, right? So we still want to give kids the ability to practice boundary setting. Oh, I'd rather do this than that. Right? Um, So, that's essentially how we would explain it to you uh, to a young child to give them that basic foundation of you have the right to your body, you have a right to your boundaries, and people should be asking for consent as well as you should be asking others for consent. So we want to make sure that we're also instilling the idea that it is a two-way street. The same with children, you know, your friend should ask you if they can hold your hand or if they can, you know, play with you. No one should just push you, you know, like, so you want to talk about some of those elements of it. Um, And essentially, that's how we can explain the concept of consent to children very simply for them to grasp and start to practice. And then from that is what we build on for abuse prevention. Hmm. Yeah, I really, I really like that where you're pointing out the points or the, the instances where 
it invalidates consent. That's something that um, one of the recent pediatrician visits with my daughter that the pediatrician even brought up too. She said, you know, no one can touch you in these places except for, you know, mom, mom and dada when they're, you know, diaper change, obviously, and then the doctor, you know, uh, so I really like that, that she was very clear about that. And so I think that that's really important, uh, because you do want to teach kids when it is and is not appropriate for someone to touch them without their consent and in those sorts of situations, so they can really understand it. I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, so I know that that's how we explain consent to little kids as a uh, permission of, you know, yes or no. Uh, could we maybe expand a little bit on that for adults? Because I think that most adults really don't understand the consent issue. And I just want to expand on that, not necessarily to convey that to children, but just to educate parents as well as what is and isn't consent. Because honestly, I, I think that the vast majority of adults don't even really understand that. Uh, you know, some nuances of consent that I've, I've recently come across are, you know, instances of when someone might change their mind, right? So they, or maybe they'll consent to a certain aspect of something and not something else. Like I, I just watched a TV show recently that was, you know, someone was on trial for sexual assault and it started off the, the encounter started off with kissing and the person consented to the kissing. But then once it started to go further than the person didn't consent. And so there was a little confusion on the jury as to, okay, well, if they were okay with kissing and they were consenting with kissing, then why isn't, why is it sexual assault if they changed their mind or said no to the further thing? So there's kind of like a sliding scale, I think of, you know, when consent starts and it can end at any time. And maybe it's just consent as to certain aspects, you know, all those sorts of nuances. So maybe you can touch yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, it's actually something that we want to even teach young kids about um, consent, that consent can always be withdrawn. So if grandma, you know, wants a hug today and you consent to that, that doesn't mean that grandma can just give you a hug anytime she wants. She still has to ask the next time. And so similarly with adults, we should be checking in because when we switch to a different activity, we're, we're needing to check in, is this activity okay? Maybe it's okay for grandma to hug you, but now she wants to give you a kiss and you don't want to kiss, right? So we're switching activities. That's a different thing. We're not talking about the same thing anymore. And so similarly with adults, we, we first of all need to understand that consent can be withdrawn. You get to be an active participant in what's happening to you and with you, and you get to change your mind about your body. So ultimately, consent is something that we need to understand um, can be withdrawn and is something that needs to be consistently communicated. And we can do that in a, in a variety of ways, but the lack of affirmation, um, you know, that this is continuing to be okay doesn't necessarily mean that that is consent. We need to um, see some visual cues, some facial cues, some body cues. We need to be tuning in, you know, to what's happening in that experience to make sure that the other person is still willing to continue that activity, right? So we, <clears throat> you know, in this particular case, I think unfortunately, in a lot of courtrooms, there is what continues to influence a lot of lawyers and judges and juries is rape culture, right? There's still mm -hmm. a lot of victim blaming that happens. Oh, oh well, yeah. she was wearing this and she was drunk and she flirted with me and this and that. And so therefore I took all of that as the assumption that it meant yes. That is a presumption that has been created by rape culture. And mm -hmm. unfortunately it doesn't apply when we're talking about what are the definitions of consent, right? There are people that want to bend and twist um, those definitions to fit whatever that narrative is that they're trying to um, present, right? So what we can say with definity, you know, with definity is that consent is something that can be withdrawn and it requires willing participants that are verbalizing or physically showing that they are um, actively participating, that they are interested in participating. And so that can be that they have verbalized a yes, um, that they are enthusiastic, 
and that they haven't been coerced, that they haven't been manipulated into the situation, right? Unfortunately, in um, in Canada right now, which is where I live, uh, there was a Supreme Court decision about um, intoxication and extreme intoxication, rather, um, as a uh, sort of an out, you know, an excuse for, well, you know, both parties were intoxicated, therefore they couldn't make um, a wise decision. So there wow. is a lot of ongoing... Um, there's a lot of ongoing change as it relates to the law and how consent is interpreted. Um, unfortunately, in the United States, there is no uh, one definition of what consent means. And that is very problematic because the, this is what creates um, a lot of cases where the victim does not receive justice because of the way that the laws or the, the terms are, are uh, interpreted. So. You know, again, going back to how we as parents need to understand this for children is that we want them to know consent can be withdrawn. You ultimately always get to say. And this is why we want kids to also practice boundary setting, to have the skills developed, to be able to verbalize what they want or don't want, to give permission or not to give permission, to be able to be free to express themselves so that if they were ever in a situation like this as an adult, they can be as clear as possible about what they want or don't want happening with their body. And we can do this from a very young age, which has nothing to do with sex and, and has everything to do with bodily autonomy, boundaries, and permission. And so when we start from that foundation, it will, um, it will continue to evolve as the child grows to see how it can apply in different situations. And ultimately, once they become intimate with someone else, <clears throat> excuse me, as a young adult, then they can apply what they've learned. Mm. I'm so glad you brought up the rape culture because that's a big elephant in the room that's really hard to overcome. And that's something I I had in my notes that I, I wanted to ask you about. Um, what What are some ways that we can talk to our kids to overcome that rape culture, because I know that that's the negative voice and pretty much every victim's head, well, at least every victim's head that I've spoken with, that everyone feels that guilt. And I've, you know, read stories of other women who have gone through it as well, that whenever something happens to them, their first reaction most of the time or all the time is to blame themselves, right? And then so I think a lot of the, the rape culture, not only is it external, but it's internal as well. Uh, what are some ways that we can talk to our kids about it to overcome it so that they can hopefully be shameless about it, but then also uh, maybe just some tools that they can reason within themselves to, to overcome the shame themselves as much as possible? Yeah. So, wow, that's a really powerful and deep question. Um, so, I mean, I think it depends a lot on the age of your child. Um, I think when you, you know, one of the ways that we can start to dismantle rape culture is really by teaching kids about them honoring the rights of others just as much as their own rights should be honored, right? And so we want to make sure that we're raising children who are not going to grow up to become abusers. We tend to focus in, you know, when we're talking about looking at the world through the lens of rape culture, we tend to focus on let's protect kids, make sure that our kids know how to set boundaries and all of that, which is great. However, if we're looking at it through that lens, we're always focused on making sure that kids um, you know, know what skills that they should have to be able to say no and how to report and all of those things. But we don't focus on what are the things that we should also be teaching children about how to respect the rights of others and make sure that they're listening and tuning in, that they're learning how to read facial cues and body cues and what to do if someone says no, because a lot of times parents are afraid of their children uh, receiving a rejection. And mm. that is actually something really powerful that children should be able to learn how to cope with as something that is just a natural consequence in the world. Not everyone, it's not personal. It's just that that person doesn't want to hug right now. That doesn't mean that you're a, a bad kid or, they're, or that they don't like you. It just means that they don't want to hug right now. Just like you wouldn't, you know, if you don't feel like having a hug, 
no one should force you or make you feel bad about that, right? So you shouldn't do the same equally, right? Um, so we want to make sure that we're also teaching both ends because if you think about how we teach young women in the world to be careful when they go out, don't go out by yourself, don't go to a party and get drunk, don't wear provocative clothing, don't do this, don't do that. So there's all of these messages that we are telling women to do so that they don't attract the wrong attention. That was how I was raised. And it very much was something that I pushed back against because I didn't want to believe that. And I, you know, I gambled on it. I ended up um, at one point being date raped and didn't know that consent could be withdrawn. And so I put myself in all these situations that I thought were my fault because I didn't know all of this, you know, previous information that, that I, you know, regardless of what I do does not invite someone to violate my body. Right. right. Just because so we you don't want, follow the rules that people recommend doesn't mean that it's your fault somehow. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's one of the ways that we can we can start to introduce this idea to young children is that, you know, if someone doesn't respect their boundaries, it's not their fault. Even if they set the boundary and the ba- boundary was pushed or or crossed or violated, that it doesn't mean that they did anything wrong. And so we want kids to know that from a very early age, because unfortunately, typically 90% of abuse happens by people that a child knows and trusts. They will have developed a friendship or relationship with that person, and that person could manipulate the child into somehow believing that it was their fault. So we want to introduce that idea very early on to children that you know, if, they've, if they understand their rights and they have set a boundary and that boundary was not respected, that doesn't mean that they did anything wrong. And that they have every right to report that so it doesn't happen again because their safety matters. Mm-hmm. Their safety is the most important thing to you. So that safe, you know, their safety trumps everything else. And that means that your love is unconditional no matter what happens to them. It means that they won't be blamed for what happens to them. That means that if they made a mistake, that it, it doesn't mean that that mistake was what caused it to happen. Right. So we want to give children all of these um, this understanding, excuse me, because then as they grow up, they understand how that translates to their particular age and stage and relationships. Right. So as they get older and they have friends who want to peer pressure them about something and then they feel bad about the decision that they made and somehow it compromises their safety, they can still recognize that they made a mistake. But ultimately, what happened to them was not their fault. It was the fault of the person who caused or inflicted the harm and crossed the boundary. So we, you know, this keeps interpreting itself into romantic relationships and into, you know, relationships in the workplace. And so we want to introduce this idea as early as possible that consent can be withdrawn, that everyone's rights matters, including their own. Um, and then how to learn to check in and interpret those, you know, facial cues, physical cues, body cues, language, um, you know, all of these things are nuanced and they require ongoing conversations throughout our children's lives, right? Mm-hmm. So this is something that we're going to teach when our kids, you know, are just in elementary school. And then, you know, as they get older, they, they should be good because now they can, you know, communicate. These are nuances that we really need to keep having these conversations as our children grow into different ages and stages. And that's how we can start to dismantle rape culture because it is so ingrained in the way that we interact in the world and then ultimately how um, that impacts survivors from reporting. And again, this is one of the reasons why it's so underreported because there's all this stigma and shame and taboo because we're not having these conversations early on. Mm. I want to touch a little bit on grooming before our podcast ends because you did mention that it usually, you know, abuse usually happens between someone who your child has a relationship with. So I think it's really important to touch on that. Uh, But before we do that, uh, I know a little bit earlier you mentioned that obviously there's not one universal definition of consent, at least in the law. And so, you know, you're in Canada, I'm in California. I just wanted to read the definition um, in California for consent because I, I I just think California does so many things really well when it comes to the law. So I like that they say that you know consent must be affirmative 
A lack of protest or resistance does not mean consent, nor does silence mean consent. Affirmative consent must be ongoing throughout a sexual activity and can be revoked at any time. And one reason why I like that so much is that it just encapsulates a lot of ev- well, everything that you've been saying really is that just because someone's silent or they don't protest or they don't say no, it doesn't mean that that there actually is consent and then it, it must be affirmative. So anyway, I just wanted to read that because I just thought it just encapsulated consent so well. Uh, mm-hmm. So getting to uh, grooming, let's touch on that. Cause I know uh, you have to leave in a few minutes. Uh, let's talk about that because I know that many times uh, from my knowledge of abuse that it doesn't happen always in the very first instant that your child meets someone, that it's someone that they trust and they've, they've come to know this person and they've developed a relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah. So grooming is really important for parents to understand what it is. Most parents don't know what it is because they don't know the statistic. They think it's like stranger danger or, um, you know, like you said, it's going to happen in an instance. Um, Usually what happens is that an offender uh, works to gain the trust of not just the child, but also the parents. The parents are the gatekeepers, right? So they're also trying to build trust with the parents so that then the child can trust them. Because typically when a child sees that a parent trusts another adult, that automatically means that they can trust that adult, right? So they are simultaneously working to gain the trust of both the parent and the child and to gain that one-on-one access. And so that can happen in many different ways. Um, some of those grooming signs can be that that you know, person is trying to um, offer babysitting you know, or any kind of free childcare you know, or you know, just be super helpful. Oh, I can you know, pick them up from school and bring them home. And that you know, car ride can be that one-on-one access that they're looking for. So they're looking to really help in whatever way they can to offer babysitting or free childcare. Um, so that can be one strategy for gaining access to the child. Another is that they start to give the child lots of gifts, whether it is, you know, very openly or secretly. And that can be, you know, big gifts or small gifts that can happen offline. It can happen online. This is a strategy that gets favor with the child. Um, another one is, um, you know, lavishing a lot of attention to the child, being very, um, you know, like whatever the parent is not, they're trying to fill that gap. So if the parent is very strict, they're going to be very permissive. If the, you know, parent um, has certain rules, they're going to let the child have, you know, those treats that maybe they wouldn't normally be, you know, allowed at home. And then there is some aspect of secret keeping. So that, you know, usually starts with trying to make it seem like it's an innocent secret. Like if I give you this treat before dinner, don't tell your parents, Um, it'll be our little secret. And then that starts to create sort of this um, special relationship that the offender is trying to create, right? And this will be something between us. That will lead to a couple of things. One is that it proves to the offender that that child can be targeted. They're willing to keep a secret. They haven't been educated about secret safety. So that child will definitely be put on the list of, this is a child that I can continue grooming. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's a whole list. There's about 10 different things, um, you know, that you can look for. But those are some of the most, you know, prominent signs of, of grooming. And if you see those in conjunction with a gut feeling that something is off, that's likely a sign that this is not, this is potentially an unsafe person and you want to limit that one-on-one access to that person and see how they respond. Talk to that adult for sure about the fact that you are teaching body safety in your home, that you're teaching secret safety. Like you want to make sure that you're being vocal with that person so that they understand that your child's not going to be an easy target and that you're a vigilant parent and that will reduce the likelihood of that person targeting your child. Um, So a lot of these grooming um, signs can happen over a very long period of time. Unfortunately, offenders are very patient. Um, a typical offender is grooming anywhere between 10 to 50 children at a time to see That's which disgusting. is going to be the easiest target. Yeah, they're yeah. looking for, for what is the easiest target? Who can I you know, go after? 
Um, so there's, you know, those are, those are some of the things that we need to look out for. And that can happen by, you know, family members. It can happen by teachers, coaches, youth serving organization, youth leaders, um, you know, uh, religious leaders. So it, it really can happen at the hands of anyone. And in particular, the least, you know, the last person that we're going to suspect is someone who is an upstanding citizen. So right. I, I want to caution parents to think, oh, well, that person, I mean, he's like, you know, the, the leader of, of the, you know, youth group, like right. that, because that person could like possibly. It, yeah. Because yeah. it seems like abusers put themselves in trusted positions so that they can Very gain much. the trust, right? I mean, all of this just makes me physically sick, but that's what I've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at, you know, uh, high profile cases like Larry Nassar, I mean, here is a person who talk about an upstanding citizen. He founded an autism foundation. Um, you know, he was, uh, you know, top of his class and, uh, you know, perceived as a leader in the gymnastics, um, you know, league. And it was just a lot of, of red flags that you can see in retrospect, mm-hmm. how he really tried to make himself look like no one could ever suspect that this person would do something like that and yet right. hundreds of girls were abused by him so right. it's just and I've heard about, oh yeah I, I've just heard about teachers that it's common for teachers to abuse students and obviously we all know about priests abusing kids as well and it, it just seems like a theme that they tend to be someone that people say oh they would never do that or they're in that trusted position and then yeah. that's what gain uh, leads to the trust and then ultimately Unfortunately, and it's it's disgusting yeah. the abuse as well. So I, I know that uh, we're almost out of time. You mentioned secret safety. Maybe you could just give a quick definition of that before we can uh, run through uh, the book recommendations. I want to make sure that we don't miss that. Yeah. So secret safety is really key because um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, like secrets are how offenders will test a child to see if they are targetable. Um, and so if a child has language to share that they don't keep secrets in their home, that can be a really powerful deterrent to an, a potential offender. So we want to teach kids the difference between secrets, surprises, and privacy, and essentially say, you know, there's no such thing as a good secret. If someone's asking you to keep a secret, it's important that you come and talk to me and let me know so that I can educate that person because they don't know about secret safety. So it really helps the child feel safe to share and that, oh, that person's not necessarily going to get in trouble for telling me something, um, you know, so the child feels safe to share it. So we want to teach kids a difference. Like secrets are things that you, someone asks you to keep that you're not supposed to ever tell anyone. Um, sometimes those secrets can make you feel bad. Um, other times they may seem like okay secrets, but they're not because if someone's asking you not to share it ever, then that means that it's not an okay secret. Surprises, on the other hand, have a timeline, right? They have an expiry date. They are meant to be shared at a certain time, and they make everyone involved feel good, right? So <laughs> that's really the main distinction between those two things. Privacy is a whole other category that sort of is more of like, you know, what's information that belongs to you that you don't necessarily want to share, but it doesn't necessarily pertain to anyone else. So for young kids, it could be like, well, I don't want people to know that I still sleep with my stuffy and so I don't want to share that information. It's like, okay, that's fine. That's private information that belongs to you. Um, so helping kids kind of understand and distinguish those differences is really helpful. And then having a secret safety rule, like we don't keep secrets in our home. And when someone asks you to keep a secret, you can tell them that. And then come and tell me that they asked you to sh- you know, keep that secret. So that's essentially secret safety. But I also have a, a workshop if anyone's interested in diving deeper um, that helps explain the concept of like tricky people and what is a safe person so that parents can understand, you know, how to explain that further to their kids. Yeah. So let's just quickly talk about all the resources that you have and then also the books too, because I saw a reel on Instagram on your page that you shared that had I forgot how many, like a handful or more consent books for kids that they're age appropriate. And I ordered them for my daughter and I've been reading them to her. And I can tell that she's thinking when I read them to her, like she's her, I can see it in her eyes that the wheels are turning in her brain and I can tell that it's registering with her. And so that makes me really happy. So uh, can you just discuss the resources that you have and then also that are available online? 
Sure. Yeah. So I love books. They're my go-to. I always recommend that to parents because it gives you the language that you didn't have growing up, right? Like most parents didn't grow up learning this stuff. So it gives you that information that you can then start to, to use in fun ways for kids. So I have a free PDF that um, is on my website. You can download it for free. And it gives you a breakdown of body safety books that I recommend based on age. And um, at the end of that list, there's also books for parents to read for themselves to kind of give them, um, you know, more information about what are the kinds of things that they should be learning about and then teaching their child as it relates to um, sex ed, for example, right? Because like you mentioned earlier, a lot of parents just that wasn't a word that even was ever said in their home. It was either maybe sex neutral or sex negative, but typically never sex positive. So there's some right. recommendations for that as well. Um, but even for survivor parents, um, you know, if that's something that you're struggling with, there's some book recommendations um, in there as well. So lots of tools to help parents get started on this and using books as fun tools to have the language to start teaching what are those appropriate words that we should be using with our kids so that they feel empowered and not scared. Mm. And one of my favorites is I see it behind you actually is the C is for consent just as a little teaser for parents who are listening. My daughter, it's a little board book actually, and it's very simple. And I was surprised that after the book, I thought that my daughter really wouldn't be interested in really learning more because it's uncomfortable for me. So I assumed it would be uncomfortable for her to talk about. And, you know, it's very kid friendly language, but then there's the discussions at the end of the book that for our, for older kids. And she said, what are these? Can you read these to me? Cause she knew they were words and nice. she wanted to talk about every single one in depth. And so I thought, wow, this is something nice. that she's really absorbing and it's really important with her. And she wanted to learn more about it. And, cause I obviously, cause we've never talked about it before. And so mm-hmm. she was really interested in it. So anyway, I just wanted to give a little plug for that book and I, I assume it's, it's on your list too. So, um, but yeah, talk, it's one of my favorites. Oh, that one's a it's fan. a great book. I it's yeah. like you said, yeah, it's simple and it has some great examples that kids can relate to. Um, you know, some fun visuals. I mean, it's just a really great starter and um, definitely one of the books that's on my list. And that you know, lots of different books um, are going to touch on different things. You're going to need more than one book, which is why I call it oh, course, having yeah. an abuse prevention library. Because some books are going to cover consent, other books are going to cover boundaries, other books are going to cover private parts, other books are going to cover what are red flags and what to do in those situations, you know. So um, I also recommend that parents start to teach this in ways that are um, age appropriate. So we want to start with, you know, those basics that I talked about, body autonomy and boundaries and consent before we ever get into a conversation about exit strategies, which can feel a lot scarier if kids don't have that really um, empowering foundation to understand their rights, you know, so um, if parents are looking for like, what do I teach first, second and third, I also do have a a workshop called getting started with abuse prevention, that walks you through what are the things that you should be teaching at different stages between zero and six. That's perfect. I love that. I'm gonna have to check out all of those resources, because I, (laughs) I didn't even realize about the exit strategy too. So I'm thinking, oh, I have to get into that too. Um, before we close, I, I had Googled earlier that California law, and I couldn't find the section too that I really wanted to highlight as well, in addition to the one I already mentioned, was that, uh, you know, in California Penal Code section 261.6, they define consent as a positive cooperation. And that is so important because most consent laws, I don't think, actually say the word positive. And mm-hmm. so that's something that I've also been emphasizing with my daughter too. I, not my son yet, because he's a year and a half, but my daughter just saying it has to be positive. If you know, it makes you feel good, makes you feel happy. If something someone's doing to you doesn't make you feel happy or good about yourself, or it makes you feel uncomfortable, that that can't be consent. And that's just my, I wish I would have known that even when, when I was dating too, just, just having that mindset, I didn't realize that. But anyway, mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention that before closing that I just think that, that that's so powerful. Uh, well, so I, where- I, I love that. And before you, before you wrap, I just want to say, yeah. I think that's really important. Um, the way that parents can look at that as it relates to children is when we um, talk about, let's say grandma comes over and she wants to hug you know, Johnny and Johnny doesn't want to hug. And then grandma suddenly starts acting really sad and pretending to like, 
you know, almost cry to kind of guilt the child into it. This is where we can step in and say, Grandma, I know that you're sad, but just because you're sad doesn't mean that Johnny has to hug, right? Because you can manage your emotions. And then we want to have a conversation with Johnny later and say, you know, you're not responsible for the emotions of others. And that means that just because grandma was sad doesn't mean that you have to do what grandma said because it's your body. And, you know, so this is how that ultimately interprets into the law later in life. And when we start practicing those um, you know, basic things in the beginning, and we talk to the adults, you know, this is why I always say, consent education isn't just for kids, it's also for adults, because most adults weren't taught this, um, we can yeah, start I, to I create wasn't. consent culture in our home. Yeah, so, you know, exactly. This is this is how we set the baseline for that kind of understanding when it comes to consent, it cannot be coerced, manipulated. And those are the kinds of ways that we can help children to start understanding that. Mm. And I like what about what you said too about be, not being responsible for other people's feelings because I think a lot of us were more raised with the people pleasing attitude of just being more mindful of other people's feelings and being polite as opposed to our own feelings and that's something that I think is so important to teach kids is that your comfort level your feelings matter in that situation too actually they're they're most important right is how you feel about a situation not the other person so I think for sure well yeah I mean if we don't teach that early on when kids get into relationships in their you know into intimate relationships in their teen years this is why consent is so blurry for a lot of kids they don't understand if Mm -hmm. this person really loves me and they're asking me to do this even though I don't want to I feel responsible for making them happy because that's how I grew up. Grandma wanted a kiss, even though I didn't want to give her a kiss. I still had to because I didn't want to see her sad and nobody told me otherwise. So Mm -hmm. these, these things have real world consequences and Mm -hmm. educating those adults and giving them those examples to help them understand and see the future of how this, you know, this, this creates these implications can really be a powerful way for them to shift and help support your abuse prevention education instead of pushing back and saying, you know, this doesn't make sense to me or, um, or just continuing to be manipulative. And if, if they are going to continue to be that way, then you know that you have to set a harder boundary with those people because they are setting the precedent for your child on what's okay and not okay. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I feel like I could talk to you forever about this because I'm just thinking in my head, oh, that probably trickles on to adult relationships and who you end up marrying and if you're going to end up in abusive marriage and all these situations like verbally abusive physically all these things so anyway I know that's a different topic for a different day but it's just so important this topic just laying Mm -hmm. the foundation for everything in life to set yourself your kid up for success in the future so thank you so much relationships yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Roselia, for coming on the show. And where can people find you online, on social media? Yeah. So the, again, thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. Um, so I can be found at consentparenting.com. That's my website. And on Instagram and Facebook, Consent Parenting is the handle. Um, and on Twitter, it's just Consent Parent. They wouldn't let me add the ing. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and I really enjoyed our conversation. And definitely going to be checking out all those additional resources. So, thank you. Thank you again.